This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. good, your brain is releasing dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, or endorphin. You want more of these great feelings because your brain is designed to seek them, but you don't always get it, and that's natural too. Our brain doesn't release a happy chemical until it sees a way to meet a survival need, like food, safety, and social support. And then you only get a quick spurt before your brain returns to neutral so it's ready for the next survival opportunity. This is why you feel up and down. It's nature's operating system. Many people have habits that are bad for survival. How does that happen if our brain rewards behaviors that are good for survival? When a happy chemical spurt is over, you feel like something is wrong. You look for a reliable way to feel good again, fast. Anything that worked before built a pathway in your brain. We all have such happy habits, from snacking to exercising. Whether it's spending or saving, partying or solitude, arguing or making up. But none of these habits can make you happy all the time because your brain doesn't work that way. Every happy chemical spurt is quickly metabolized and you have to do more to get more. You can end up overdoing a happy habit to the point of unhappiness. Wouldn't it be great if you could turn on your happy chemicals in new ways? Wouldn't it be nice to feel good while doing things that are actually good for you? You can when you understand your mammal brain. Valeria Tellis interviews Dr. Loretta Bruning, She is founder of the Inner Mammal Institute and author of Habits of a Happy Brain. Retrain your brain to boost your serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphin levels. As professor of management at California State University and as a parent, she lost faith in prevailing views of human motivation. Her search for answers led to the study of the brain chemistry we share with earlier mammals. Suddenly, everything made sense, and she began creating resources to help people manage their inner mammal. The Inner Mammal Institute offers videos, books, podcasts, multimedia, and a training program to help you make peace with your inner mammal. Dr. Bruning's latest book is Tame Your Anxiety, Rewiring Your Brain for Happiness. Here is the interview with Dr. Loretta Bruning.
own words, who is Dr. Loretta Bruni? <laughs> well, I am a retired college professor and a mother. And I'm sort of, I consider myself sort of an escapee from the academic establishment. <laughs> so I have studied psychology my whole life, but because I was not licensed, credentialed and teaching it, I was able to follow my own sense of what's true rather than being forced to embrace one particular brand of psychology or another. So I ended up, uh, what I call it is connecting the dots in a way that to me explains how our brains work. And then I went on to write a few books about it. Wow. And it's a very interesting work. Um, so before we talk about your book, actually, Habits of a Happy Brain, I have a few warm-up questions, as I mentioned before. What is the mind and what are thoughts? So here's the huge part that I think often gets overlooked. So we're all born with billions of neurons, but very few connections between them. So we're not born hardwired like animals. Our connections build from experience. So which experience? You don't memorize every minute of your life. It's whenever your happy chemicals are flowing or your unhappy chemicals flowing, that's your brain's signal of this information is important. So every brain is wired from its own early experience. So whatever felt good to you in the past, whatever felt bad to you in the past, that built connections between your neurons. And even if you don't remember the experience, the electricity in your brain flows where there's already connections. I always say it flows like water in a storm. It finds the path of least resistance. And that's why we tend to repeat the responses of our past. You connect this, what you just said about the brain making these connections, navigating its own system, physical system. That is what you call the mind and the thoughts. Oh, okay. So thoughts are your verbal brain's effort to attach words to these impulses. So the impulses start out and the mind is just the collection of the neural pathways that you have. And the thoughts are the words that you, the thoughts that you are able to recover. And we don't recover most of them because they work the same in animals and animals don't have a verbal brain. So this whole neurochemical system works perfectly well without words. But when I say perfectly mm -hmm. well, <laughs> I mean, it, it works in the animal world where you just grab food to avoid starving and bite anyone who gets in your way is like a simplistic way of saying it. Yeah. Maybe later on, I will try to, um, I'll ask you questions about spirituality. And I think I have one here for the warm-up questions. So what is life to you? What does life mean to you? What does life mean to me? <laughs> um, <laughs> so our brain is designed to seek happy chemicals. They are not designed to be on all the time. And our brain easily releases unhappy chemicals because um, in the state of nature, you can get instantly killed by a threat. So we're always looking for potential threats and that feels bad. And we look for ways to avoid these threatened feelings. And anything that turns on your happy chemicals helps to relieve these threatened feelings. So 
in a nonverbal way, you know, people aren't really intending to say, oh, I want to spend my whole life avoiding threat. But um, that's basically what we do because that's how our animal brain wires us. And then as we grow in experience, we can find better ways to do that instead of the unhealthy ways of doing that that we could all easily think of. Right. Wow. It's so interesting the way you bring everything back to to earth. <laughs> the body and how it works, the, the, the mechanism, the organs, the brain. Very interesting. I'll get deeper into it. <laughs> um, what is your definition of happiness, your own definition? Okay. <laughs> so um, in the state of nature, our happy chemicals are only released in short spurts. So the simple example is that if a monkey finds food, his happy chemicals turn on and that motivates him to go toward the food and relieve his hunger. But that food doesn't make him happy the rest of his life because soon the food is digested. So our brain is designed to motivate seeking because our ancestors had to constantly seek. So any way that like if a monkey finds food in this tree, that connects neurons and builds a pathway that gives them a good feeling about that tree and trees like that. But in reality, if you spend your whole life in that same tree, you've soon eaten all the food. So nothing that makes you happy now is going to make you happy forever. But The good feeling wired you to seek that particular thing. And that's why we all drive ourselves crazy because we seek, 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 but then it doesn't make us happy when you get it. So to me, happiness is to understand that this is how your brain works so that you can sort of um, free yourself from believing everything that your brain tells you. Right. So that makes me wonder about joy. Because I might say that I have the experience of happiness without any attachment to anything that's physical, food, people, or anything. So how do you explain that, this feeling of contentment? Sure. Okay, I'm going to give you a very practical explanation. And I know it's not spiritual, and people often like spiritual explanations, mm-hmm. but yeah. this is what I'll <laughs> So um, in the animal world, your survival is constantly threatened. So, you know, like a gazelle could get eaten alive by a predator in every moment. It can drink at the water hole next to the predator that ate its child alive and it watched itself. It watched its child getting eaten. So why don't they have post-traumatic stress? Mm, Right. So everybody now has this idea like the modern world is so hard. No, it's just, just the opposite. It's like the modern world is so easy that we never have to deal with real stress. So we never build enough confidence in our own ability to meet our survival needs. So animals, they don't question their own ability to meet their survival needs. But it's not because they're so spiritual. It's because our brain is so small (laughs) that that, uh, they only deal with what what is at the moment. So let's say I have in the past succeeded at um, conquering a certain challenge. But you could say, well, yeah, I did it yesterday, but tomorrow something worse can happen and I might not be able to deal with that. So it's because we have a big brain that can anticipate abstractions that that don't exist in the moment so we can imagine future threats. And the only way to not constantly feel threatened 
is to have confidence in your own ability to meet your survival needs. So to me, that's that's the idea that um, when you say, I can deal with anything that comes along, so therefore I can lower my guard, I'm fine, I can just enjoy what I have rather than always worrying about losing what I have because it's the confidence in knowing that you can meet whatever comes along. So that's the way I think wow. that. That sounds spiritual to me. <laughs> that confidence, that, that trust in yourself. Yes. That's yes. really great. What do you think is the world's greatest need? So um, frankly, what I say in my all of my books is that each of us should focus on our own brain. Because as you know, so many people are always saying we as a society this and we as a society that. And often that's an escape from taking responsibility for your own brain and blaming your emotions on society and saying, well, you know, I have this bad habit because society has this bad habit. All of my books are like, okay, I'm not even going to talk. It's so tempting to just focus on what other people need to do and to ignore what you need to do. So true. Yeah. So that's why, um, you know what, I I have to say I've already forgotten. Could you say the question again? (laughs) Yes. Uh, What is the world's greatest need? Oh, yeah. So, So the world's greatest need is for everyone to focus on taking responsibility for their own brain instead of just assuming, well, I would be happy if only other people were more this or this or this. Yeah. Wow. I love that, Loretta. It might sound uh, a bit selfish, but I think that's self-love, isn't it? It's quite the opposite. Exactly. Self-knowledge. And and also um, self-acceptance is uh, very huge because um, when people recognize this um, selfish impulse that comes from our survival brain, then they're told that that's evil and you're not supposed to care about your own survival. You're only supposed to care about the survival of others. And what that usually leads to is the idea of like, okay, I'm not going to focus on meeting my needs. I'm going to focus on meeting your needs. But then when my needs don't get met, I'm going to be mad at you for it. Right. How interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it never works. Mm. And it's so common. Very common, true. <laughs> yeah, I see. Yeah, right, right. Um, what is your greatest inspiration to wake up every morning? Oh, you know what? I get really nice letters from people. So that's my inspiration. And people thank me for the insight. And I sort of remember how that's how I felt when I first discovered this information. So I'm glad that I can spread it. And the other part of that is um, for most of my life, you know, I, I always talk about how the brain is shaped in childhood. So for most of my life, childhood and adulthood, you know, I had to bite my tongue for one reason or another. And now that I'm sort of um, officially retired and I get to say what I want, it's so great, you know? Right. Oh, yeah. You you said something interesting now, the answer you gave me for that last question, the greatest inspiration to wake up, just reading what other people have to say about your work and you. And now I'm wondering, what is the balance between focusing on our own brain, our own lives, and uh, pleasing others and helping others and connecting deeply with others? That's a great question. Um, And actually, I would say that, um, you know, you use the concept of non-attachment. And um, I think the the way I I use this expression we have in English, I don't know about other languages, of um, 
if you put an iron in the fire every day, you can't predict when each iron will heat up. So what I'm saying is if every day I focus on expressing my truth rather than pleasing someone, but I might get like a letter of appreciation from someone who found my work because of something I did a year ago or five years ago. So I just focus on putting another iron in the fire every day and having the confidence that it will heat up. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I love, absolutely love that. So by... Do you have that expression of putting irons in the fire? I don't know if it translates. No, we don't. I don't remember that in Portuguese. That's my first language. I don't remember that expression, but it sounds really good. Yeah, because it doesn't really make... I don't even know if young Americans understand it because I think it's from blacksmiths, you know, 200 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but it makes sense to me, um, the way you explain it. And yeah, right. If we work on ourselves, then good things will come. Not that I just believe in good things. I'm not naive uh, to believe that only good things would come. But yeah, right. Good things will come, but you can't predict them or control them. But if you stop trying, then you won't get the good things. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And I absolutely love what you said about the truth, just being truthful to ourselves and trusting that. Yes. Although I have to say that, um, you know, when I was young and I had a boss to please and a family to raise, so I want to recognize how hard that is to put into practice because at my point in life where I'm retired and my kids are grown, so I know I shouldn't make too much of that because it's not Realist, it wasn't as realistic, you know, before. Right. It's not always realistic. Right. Um, what is love to you? What is love to you? Um, so, uh, <laughs> so again, I'm going to start with a selfish view from the animal world. When you see two monkeys that are grooming each other's fur, many people think, oh, it's so sweet, you know. But actually, animals make very careful decisions about whose fur to groom and who can help me. And then if you groom someone's fur and they don't reciprocate in any way, then you have to find someone else's fur to groom in order to survive because you need mutuality. So um, the idea that love is like pure and has no mutuality, I think it's it's sort of dishonest, you know? Um, and people like to think that, but then they sort of end up resentful because they um, maybe are over-investing in something and then not getting a reward, and then they end up bitter and resentful. And another thing, though, I have to tell you, because the brain builds its circuits from past experience, so I'm going to tell you a horrible experience, okay? So I'm going to find a nice way to say this. So I was on a trip in a place where I got like the worst case of dysentery of my whole life, let's say. And my husband, who I only been married to a couple of years at that point, he cleaned up without asking. And when I tell you that it was quite a challenge. Um, and at that point, I said to myself, wow, I owe this guy forever. You know, yeah, amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> mm, so wow. it's because of the um and that's not i mean you could say well anybody could you know clean up a mess but it was because my thread chemicals were so uh strong and anything that relieves a strong threat is a strong reward and just to know the funny thing is um right before i got sick earlier that day 
my husband got sick and I wasn't with him. <laughs> so he actually, you know, did it for me and I hadn't even done it for him. <laughs> How interesting your definition of love, um, mutual care, right? <laughs> yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me, right? Not just in the physical world, in the animal world, but also as spiritually. <laughs> I always go back to that. I don't know what's not spiritual in a way. Well, you know, it's spiritual, you could say in a way, is that when he cleaned up after me, he was not expecting an immediate reward, you know? Mm, um, right. It was just because he's that kind of person, you know? Yeah, yeah. How wonderful. What, where, and who is God to you? I have to say that I am not, um, I am not publicly taking any positions on that. So I am very much a respecter of all views. So whether a person is a believer or a non-believer, uh, I don't want to embrace either one as superior. So that's um, just sort of my public position. Um, however, I want to also add that um, I, there's this thing called the terror management theory of emotions. And I really think it's true. So the idea is that we, we are terrified by the thought of our own mortality. Mm, we know yeah. we're going to die. Yeah. And animals do not know they're going to die because death is an abstraction and animals only focus on what they're experiencing in that moment. So um, we have to find a way to feel safe and to quell this sense of this fear of our own mortality, which is very hard because our brain evolved to look for threats. And since we know that something will kill us someday and we don't know what, then everything is a threat. And that's what, when you watch the news, that's all it is, is an appeal to like, about this threat? What about this threat? What about this threat? True. <laughs> That's kind of funny in a way, but it's true. It's, it's not, actually not funny at all. It causes a lot of pain, right? Suffering. Yes, unless a person shuts off the news, which is the, um, so much. <laughs> the sensible thing to do. I agree. Um, so, excuse me. So, um, all through human history, so people have found different ways of feeling okay about their mortality. And religion is, I think, very, very, very effective. And in most of human history, having grandchildren and watching your grandchildren reproduce your traditions, that was um, a big way to um, feel okay with your mortality because you saw yourself living on. And today, very few people get to watch their grandchildren embracing their traditions for one reason or another. And so that leaves us all the more need for other ways of managing our threatened feelings. Right. Are you afraid to die? Um, well, I would be if I spent a lot of time thinking about it. Um, so I don't. <laughs> <laughs> right. That is so great. What do you think is the purpose of your life, Loretta? The purpose of my life? Um, well, um, so let's just say that my verbal brain has one answer and my mammal brain has another. <laughs> From my mammal brain's perspective, uh, so if anybody has studied evolutionary psychology, you know that um, the survival of your genes is what our brain was naturally selected for. So nobody goes through life saying, oh, all I care about is the survival of my genes, but that's the brain that natural selection produces. I know that my grandchildren 
are what will give me a sense of reward and relief. And yet, um, <laughs> I, I don't have a lot of contact with my grandchildren. And when I say grandchildren, this is very funny because so one of them is a year and a half old and the other will not be born until October. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I know that that's what um, turns on my mammal brain. Now, my verbal brain, what I have chosen consciously to focus on is creativity because creativity gives you that sense of, I am creating something that will survive. Right. And that's true in a way. And oh, and also because I have control over my creativity, but I don't have control over my access to my grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> it could be that too. That's, that's great. Very practical. Do you think that life has a grand purpose? Life itself in general has a purpose? Good question. Here again, I would say I do not have that belief, but um, anyone who has that belief, I totally respect it. And yet I don't want to spend a lot of time debating it. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, fair enough. So let's talk about your book. What inspired you to write the book Habits of a Happy Brain? Sure. Well, it's, it's a really interesting story. Um, I was always interested in writing and never got anything published. I was like a total washout in the publishing department. And then I was able to take early retirement when I turned 50. And self-publishing came out about then, um, or a little later. And I just said to myself, I'm going to write the book of my dreams. And if no one will publish it, I am just going to publish it myself. So long story short, excuse me, it took me over five years. Um, and once it came out, nobody read it. Um, and I was totally not focused on marketing because as a lifelong academic, you know, um, marketing is like so taboo in academia. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I always had this choice between, you know, every minute that I spend marketing, I could have been spent writing another book. So I thought, oh, I'd rather write another book. So that's how I came to write that book. <laughs> and <laughs> that one was self-published too. And then I joined um, a social support group for self-publishing people. And we had these meetings at which each person gets 20 seconds to introduce themselves and also to put their books on a display table and at that meeting, a, a literary agent found my book and sold it to a publisher. Mm, how wonderful. Wow. Oh, and that's separate from like, well, why did I write this book? So that's a separate, uh, I mean, why did I write this particular con content? So um, as I said, my whole life, I had been um, quite a student of psychology and I had my own challenges like everyone because I had a, a very harsh early experience. But, you know, I think everybody can find harshness in their early experience. And over time, I saw the common thread in everyone's sort of psychological challenges and in all of the various solutions. And that drove me to look for a deeper explanation of that. And what drove me the most was um, we all have our theory, you know. So my theory, which I was very much an academic theory, that if you give children this complete love and acceptance, that then their life will be 
easy. And when I became a PTA mom, I was surrounded by children who were given that, who were totally spoiled and not happy. And when I started studying the animal brain, it's like, wow. So if you give an animal everything at once, doesn't necessarily make it peaceful and loving. Like, wow, that was amazing to me. <laughs> yeah, it amazes me to just hear that. It doesn't make a lot of sense, right? To the yeah. mind. Uh, yeah, hopefully you won't experiment on your own kids. <laughs> no, like, I don't okay. think I'll have them. <laughs> um, experiment on animals first. <laughs> right, right. That's a good suggestion. <laughs> um, what really makes humans humans? Very good question. So the amazing thing is if you look at the core chunk inside of our brain, most people have heard the idea of like the amygdala, the hippocampus, the hypothalamus, that's often called the limbic system. So that is almost the, exactly the same as in mammals. And so it's the big cortex that makes us different. And um, there's you know a lot of debate about this. And a lot of that debate has a political bias. And because I've been around so long, I have seen so many trends come and go in academia. And the current trend is that um, the animal world is peaceful and loving and cooperative and everything bad is caused by capitalism. So if you look before that, there's like a century of research on um, the not nice behavior of animals. So um, I'm sorry, tell me the question again. Yeah, what makes, what really oh, makes what really humans? Makes yes. humans. So, <laughs> so all these people who are trying to say that animals are better is um, they are comparing the animal brain to the human brain in a kind of biased way. So when I say that humans have big brain, they do. I know people have read these biased indicators, but there's so many things about our brain that's bigger. I call it the pink fluffy part. So the pink fluffy part of your brain is much bigger than an animal. And also it's more interconnected and it gets more oxygen. So in so many ways, our bigger brain gives us the ability to abstract. And that means we can use language and we can conceptualize the consequences of our actions before actually doing something. And we can generalize. So we could say, if this doesn't work, then maybe that won't work and maybe this will work. And that's what makes us different from that. Wow. For good and bad. <laughs> A pleasant and unpleasant experience, right? Like traumatic learning. Yeah, we, we tend to just hold on to those uh, experiences for too long. Um, how is the up and down feeling natural? And why are they so challenging? To make sense of? Sure. Good question. Um, so our happy chemicals that I talk about in the book, serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, and endorphin. And um, people have gotten the impression from the medical establishment and the academic establishment that these chemicals should just flow all the time for no reason. And I should be happy sitting on the couch. And if I'm not, then it must be a disease and the doctor can fix me. But when you know how it works in animals, it's easy to see that each of these chemicals turns on for a very specific reason in a specific situation, and then it's gone just for a few minutes, and then it's metabolized, and you have to do more to get more. So ups and downs are natural, 
And once uh, the simple example is, as I said, if a monkey sees a piece of fruit and it's like, wow, that will meet my needs, that goes toward the fruit, it gets the fruit, then maybe it rests and digests for a while, and then it gets hungry. So the good feeling only turns on when when it's needed to meet a specific need. Right. So let's talk about those uh, brain chemicals, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, endorphin, and cortisol too. I have them here on my list. Uh, Dopamine being the first one. Um, How is dopamine connected to expectation and imagination? That's what I read in your book. There's a connection with that chemical. Good, good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so expectation, or I call it anticipation. So our brain is wired from experience. So anything that triggered your dopamine in the past starts turning it on faster in the future because electricity flows along the pathways that exist. So the simplest example is, let's say you're a newborn baby and you don't know what milk is and you don't know what your mother is, but when you get fed, wow, that feels good. So that builds a pathway that connects every neuron active at that moment. So in the future, when you hear your mother's footsteps, you expect a good feeling and you expect a relief of your bad feeling, which is hunger, even though you still don't know what milk is and you still don't know what your mother is. Wow. How interesting. And thinking about, when I think about this idea of always expecting to have a good feeling or uh, to be happy all the time. And a lot of people have this idea that being unhappy is not natural Mm. or healthy. Mm. So I'm wondering, how do we learn to understand that better ourselves better? And what do we do? I know you call, you have a lot of exercise. Your book is wonderfully formatted and well-written. You have sections where you say, how do we create more of this feeling? So how do we create more of the dopamine feeling in a healthy way? Good question. Um, And first, I just want to quickly address what you said about, um, oh, people thinking unhappiness is bad. That's partly based on the belief that other people are happy all the time. Interesting. Yeah, that's, um, let's just say that call it a theory. And and if you research that theory, you, you know, you may find it's like, you don't have to torture yourself <laughs> and you're with not, the belief right. that other you're people are happy right. every minute right. and you're missing out. Mm-hmm. So um, specific ideas for um, stimulating dopamine. So the simple answer I use is to have a long run goal, a short run goal, and a medium term goal. Because your brain only releases the dopamine when it sees that you're approaching a reward and then it stops when you get the reward. So if you have a long-term goal, then it always sort of gives you something, but we all know that you can't make progress on your long-term goal every day and then you might feel hopeless and frustrated. So a short-term goal is something you have control over and my favorite example is like baking cookies because you know, it has a <laughs> lot of cute. steps, but you expect a reward at the end of the steps. And so you have control <laughs> over that. So you can bake cookies whenever you want. And what I say in the book is you could even put half in the freezer <laughs> okay, and a... give away most of the rest and only eat one. Yeah. <laughs> so I love that cooking though. You that can makes bake sense. cookies yeah. without being mm. unhealthy. 
Um, and then the medium goal, again, is the idea that um, it sort of keeps you realistic. So you could say, you know, every, let's just say hypothetically every month, you know, even if the medium term goal is that closet of yours, that's a mess. And for years you have wanted to clean it up. And if you say, you know, uh, this month I'm going to spend 10 minutes a day on that closet and True. by the end of the and month, it will be cleaned up and you will feel so <laughs> good about so it. That's so interesting how, yeah, we tend to be so complex with our thinking, with the abstract, but there are so many things here now in, the, in, the, in this present moment that can bring so much happiness, can, can give us so much satisfaction. Um, although I, I do love the idea of imagination. Oh, that's right. You asked about imagination. So um, I'm familiar with the popular theories. And um, so let's look at this way. So first, we're told that we should be in the moment and focus on the moment. But then imagination is not in the moment. Imagination. So, so I think so much of this theory is contradictory. And again, I don't like blaming others. And when people talk about being in the moment, they're mostly angry at others. Like if I'm having lunch with you and you look at your phone, then I can be mad at you for not giving your 100% attention to me. So I feel like a lot of this present moment, it has um, a real mm, blame element. Yeah, I never thought <laughs> it this way, but it might. Yeah, it might. It might. Um, what is the connection between cocaine and dopamine? Yeah, so very good. Um, it's pretty darn similar. Um, I mean, technically for biology fans, I'll just explain. Um, many people have heard about antidepressants, which are supposed to raise your serotonin by keeping it in your system longer rather than just letting it get reabsorbed the way it naturally would. So cocaine does that for dopamine. Any dopamine you stimulate hangs around longer and again, gives you the illusion that you're getting something done when you're not. Gives you the illusion that you're approaching a reward, even though you're not lifting a finger. So you can imagine how crappy you feel when the cocaine is gone, which is why it just um, exacerbates any unfortunate loop that a person might have. Does it apply also to other kinds of drugs? Like um, one that's interesting is used a lot for therapy is psychedelics. Not sure. LSD, I think it's one of them. Yeah. So um, again, this is a bandwagon that I'm not on. Um, I know it's very popular and I, I make it a practice to not attack other people's theories. But um, so I'll, I'll just say one one thing about this. And, and also it relates to mindfulness, which is another popular strategy. So um, we effortlessly flow into, a lot of people call it automatic pilot, which is the neural pathways that built into superhighways when you were young due to myelinization. And we flow into those myelinated pathways so effortlessly that we don't even realize we have a choice. And even when you realize you have a choice, um, turning your electricity um, into a small new neural pathway rather than the big one, it's like what I always tell people, it's like um, walking a trail in, the, in a rainforest rather than driving down a paved highway. It takes so much effort 
to just go one step in a rainforest and one more step and one more step. So we're always tempted to flow where we've flown before. So we have two challenges. So one is to realize you're doing that and stop. And the other is to build new pathways. So my feeling is that um, mindfulness and other sort of mind-altering experiences is a way that helps people stop flowing automatically into the old pathways, but it doesn't help you develop the healthy new pathways. So that to me, the way you develop the healthy new pathways is by repeating a healthy behavior because um, repetition is what builds new pathways. So that's a very unfun strategy. So many people are looking for fun strategies. So that's life. Yeah, right. It's in a lot of times, whatever that we call good, it takes hard work, right? And effort, it's not easy. And you're right. Most people, they want it easy. Yeah, there. Yes. And also it's like we, everybody would love a, a messiah, like somebody who, um, like if you're going to take um, a drug and you have someone who is telling you, oh, this is it. This is the thing. It's going to fix you. But that person is not unbiased. Yeah, that's a good question too, right? Is, is anyone unbiased? Good question. No, no, everyone is biased. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm so aware of my own biases. And to some degree, we, you know, we have to accept our own biases and say, um, I, I know I have a choice. And I'm aware of my choice and I'm still (laughs) choosing to do, you know, and I'll give you a funny example is when I told you that um, when I wrote that book, because the first one didn't sell, guess what I did after that second book is (laughs) I wrote a third book. So, (laughs) so I just keep writing another book. Like, wow, I'm just as biased as everybody else. Hmm. Uh, Do you believe in being open-minded as a way of becoming unbiased? Oh, good. Yeah. So here's the thing. Yes, open-minded is good, but for our brain to release the happy chemicals, you have to expect a reward. So let me give you an example. If I give you a flute and I say, you should take flute lessons. You're going to love playing the flute. It's going to make you so happy. Like the person who tells you that, it's because that worked for them during their years of neuroplasticity. And when they feel bad playing the flute, distracts them because they've already built up those flute playing circuits. But you would say to yourself, doesn't sound like fun to me. (laughs) (laughs) So we are all approaching the world through the lens of the neural pathways that we have. So we all have to look for like what I call it is putting new leaves on the branches of your neural pathways. So you can't rewrite yourself from scratch but you can grow like new twigs and new leaves and and develop, but not to hate the neural tree that you already have because then you're going to hate yourself. Mm. Oh, wow. You know, like you can't say I should like to play the flute because all my friends are in a band and I want to be in it too, so I should like it and what's wrong with me. Right. I like that. That sounds spiritual too. <laughs> According to the spiritual traditions, yeah, they say that shoulds is a no-no. So I have so many questions for you. So let me go perhaps one brain chemical at a time and just ask one or two questions. The next one is uh, serotonin. What is the connection between dominance and serotonin? Thank you. So this is really the unique aspect of my work. So 
in research in the 1970s and 80s on monkeys, it was observed that um, more dominant monkeys uh, released serotonin and that it was a temporary effect. It's not like a personality type, like I get free serotonin and you don't, but it was um, when a monkey had an opportunity to be in the position of strength, then um, it released more serotonin. And this was based on before that, like a hundred years of research in the social rivalry or competitiveness among animals, which has always been observed. And it's kind of taboo today to talk about it. We're supposed to think that animals are cooperative and supportive. Um, and they are a small percentage of the time and the rest of the time they're competitive. <laughs> so right. you're getting somewhat of biased research. And if you uh, Google, you know, dominance hierarchies and pecking order, you get the century of research that came before this current fad. And um, when you get to be in the one-up position, you get a little serotonin, but then it's soon metabolized and the good feeling is over. So nobody gets a free pass for serotonin. And if you think like, if I were king of the world or look at him, he thinks he's the boss around here, that person is not getting it either because they are constantly worried about who's going to unseat them from the position they have. So every brain worries about how am I going to keep my one-up position? And um, there are like nice ways to do it and not nice ways to do it. Is there a difference between male survival strategies from um, females? And maybe the question that I wanted to ask really is like, is there a difference in this, uh, the release of these chemicals from male and females or they're they all the same? Um, so, um, first, uh, just to separate these happy chemicals from sex hormones. So obviously sex hormones are different, but, um, and, and uh, even sex hormones, they overlap. We, we all, both sexes have both chemicals. It's just one has more than the other of each. And, um, I focus on what is universal in common to men and women, despite the fact I certainly know that there's a lot of people holding the view. And uh, I'm writing a new book about status, and I have a lengthy section because when you read about status conflict in animals that people say, oh, well, this is just male behavior. But female animals seek dominance in vicious, violent ways whenever they have the opportunity to do it. Wow. And one species after another, I could go on. <laughs> that is interesting. I heard that before. Women can be as violent as men, but they often don't expose that violence. Yes. And also to say that um, I, I don't call it violence because I call it seeking the one-up position. Mm, right, so right. men um, seek the one-up position. Women seek the one-up position. Most men in today's world do not seek it through violence. And fortunately, most females do not either. So we're all challenged to learn other ways to seek it. But in nature, females do not seek it as much because they would lose. And younger, weaker males do not seek it because they would lose. So in a way, they, they're already wired to know these things. They're, they're self-aware. 
Oh, well, that's great. You know what? They don't, they're not hardwired to know it though. They learn from experience. So when you see two little monkeys wrestling, which they do like almost constantly, that's how they're wiring themselves with that sense of um, when I can dominate and when I must submit to protect myself. Right. So, yeah. Do you call this, um, there's another word, good, um, not intuition, but um, instincts. Oh, good question. So instinct, um, there's different um, ways of looking at it. So the most technical would be that your genes create um, the pathways and therefore um, every individual in your species would have the same uh, responses. And um, the smaller the animal's brain, the more hardwired it is, the more its genes control its wiring. The bigger an animal's brain the more its um, wiring is built from experience. Okay, so there is a difference. Yeah, it's not. Talk to me about oxytocin and trust. Sure. So oxytocin is the chemical that makes us feel good when we have social support. And the animal example that's well known is when an animal is with its herd, then it's safer from predators and oxytocin is the feeling that you can lower your guard because you're with, um, you're in a place where you can trust. And it feels so good that we would like to have that feeling all the time, but it's not designed to flow all the time because if it did, then what would happen is you would trust people you shouldn't trust. Or from an animal example, an animal would wander off alone and get eaten by a predator if it's oxytocin float all the time. So instead, you only get it when you have social support. But in the modern human world, nobody wants to be forced to stay with their tribe every minute the way humans did for most, most of human history. And so that's why we're so eager for other ways of stimulating it. Oh, well, so you were asking about the trust part. So the bigger an animal's brain the more it makes fine distinctions about who to trust. So a herd animal, it's just, you know, either you trust the herd or you don't, but it's not very individual. But with primates who have bigger brains, they can, um, it's like they have enough neurons to build individual relationships. And the simple thing I always say is, um, if I get too close to the wrong ape, he could kill me in an instant. So if you let them groom your fur, then it's you have to trust them. So oxytocin and touch and trust go together because you have to trust someone to let them get close enough to touch you. True. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. And how is it different um, trusting a group and trusting ourselves? This is uh, something that you mentioned in your book. Great question. So trusting yourself it's mostly a human thing. Now, I'll, I'll give you like an animal example, though. Um, let's say that animals are starving to death, that um, they're in a drought and it's very limited food. So most of the time they stick with a group, but the hungrier they are, the more they take the chance of distancing themselves from the group in order to meet their needs. So that would be like the animal example of trusting yourself rather than trusting the group. Now, in the human world, we're capable of trotting off to greener pasture, even when we're not dying of hunger, to say, well, you know, I'm going to go off on my own, and if a predator comes, 
I'll find safety then, but I'm not going to worry about it now because I see opportunity by leaving the herd. Yeah. Oh, wow. So we are in a way very different from the animal world. Oh, I don't say that. I, I would get hate mail if I said that. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know if anybody... I don't even divide because it's very controversial. Um, I don't know if you've been around people who get into this issue. So um, I just sort of look at it as a continuum between big brains and small brains. And it's very easy to see the continuum because, and I explain this in my book, there's an exact correlation between the length of a child of your childhood and the size of your brain because it takes so long to wire a brain. So you need a longer childhood when you have a bigger brain. Yeah, let's talk about the next chemical, endorphin, and the value of pain, cry, laughter, physical exhaustion. Sure. So animals um, only release endorphin when they're in real physical pain because it's the same chemical as morphine. And endorphin means endogenous morphine. Endogenous means inside. So. Um, it's the sa- it's the same as opioid, and its job is to mask pain so that an animal can run to save its life when it's injured, and it only masks pain for a short time because if you masked pain all the time, you would run on a broken leg, and that would not be healthy. So it's only designed to give you a small window of opportunity to save your life when you're injured, and after about 15 minutes, then either the animal has been eaten or it has to hide, withdraw to protect it. It has escaped and now it's protecting its injuries. So in the human world, um, many people in their unconscious brain, they've, no- they've noticed like this strange good feeling and it really comes from physical pain and people try to do painful things to stimulate it, which is not what we're designed to do and is not what I'm advocating. So I always say that all the others are things we're supposed to look for. But because people look for it, so I mentioned like a hot tub is an example. Um, Hot food is an example. And exercise, I'm very cautious about this because so many people exercise to the point of pain because this this chemicals, it was the first one that was discovered. So it's gotten oversimplified and people think it's the key to happiness. And then when they're not happy, they just exercise more and more and more. So that's why I'm very cautious about that. And then I'm doubly cautious because um, if you starve yourself, you get a little. So you know why I'm cautious of that. Wow. Yeah. That is true um, from my own experience with the fitness world. And um, so what's the connection between endorphin and cry and laughter? Oh, yeah, I forgot. Yeah. Um, so laughing um, triggers a little bit of endorphin. And what I say, right. it's not like a, oh, an endorphin high, you know, it's just a few seconds of it. Um, but the reason it triggers it is because it's basically um, giving you vigorous movement in a muscle that doesn't get used much. And so laughter, we don't have absolute control over it, but it's actually the healthiest option we have. Mm, So that's why I always advocate doing whatever we can to bring laughter into our lives. And I have three in the book, I have like three solutions of how to do that. And then crying. So crying 
you get, because of the same like jerkiness of those muscles, you get endorphin, but you also get a lot of bad chemicals. So I'm definitely not advocating that, but I'm also pointing out that, you know, when a person feels strangely good after they cry, I think that explains it. Right. Uh, How fascinating. So what is the, you said the healthiest way to stimulate release endorphins um, in a healthy way is laughter. What is the the other one? Do you have two other examples? Oh, um, so one has gotten very popular, you know, it's move often. So it's not, you know, movement to the point of pain, right. but moving often. Right. And I'll give you three ways to enjoy laughter. Okay. Mm, yeah. So one is to have um, humorous podcasts on your phone. <laughs> and what I always say is when, you know, when you're in a horrible meeting to tell yourself, oh, as soon as this is over, I'm going to go listen to one of my humorous podcasts. And to um, what I say is if you're stuck at the office, you can walk up and down stairs while you're listening to it because that gives you a full mind and body distraction from the awful feeling of the meeting. So that's one. So another one is um, I always explain that um, I have this comedy theater that I love and I often tried to bring friends and they did not love it. And they invited me to other things that I did not think were funny at all. So you have to prioritize your own taste and humor rather than just going along with what your friends think is funny. And the final one is in many cultures, um, it's sort of considered rude or even like at the office or something like when you burst out laughing that people try to withhold that. And you actually need the the physicalness of laughing to get the endorphin. So try to undo the habit of holding back your laughter. Yeah, it's in a funny. Yeah, I heard about that too, that people do that. Yeah, they hold back on happiness, joy, right? Those happy feelings. Um, mm-hmm. I think my last question here uh, on endorphin is adrenaline. How is it different from endorphin? Yeah, good question. So I distinguish between the happy chemicals and the unhappy chemicals. So the happy rewards you for doing something that meets your needs. And the unhappy chemical warns you of something that undermines your ability to meet your needs or or actually threatens you. Now, adrenaline is sort of in the middle. It tells you something urgent is happening, but it doesn't mark it as good urgent or bad urgent. And that's why people have such different opinions about um, adrenaline. So one person loves a roller coaster and one hates it. One loves horror movies and one hates it. One loves um, danger sports and one hates it. So because it's neutral, each of us has wired it from our past experience. And so, for example, when, when I was young, if like something urgent was happening, it was usually bad. So I learned to equate, you know, like emergency with bad, whereas other people have a, um, a sense of boredom and that feels bad to them. So to them, like a urgency is like something good, like, wow, something's going on. So right. adrenaline is that urgent attention that we then interpret based on our own past experience. And, and of course, based on what is actually going on in the moment. So we all have some sense of reality filtered by our old pathways. Right. So that's kind of in between. Adrenaline is not 
happy or unhappy chemical. It's just, um, it depends. It's alertness. You can call it alertness. So let's talk about cortisol. What triggers cortisol? And this chemical is always considered um, unhappy? Um, good point. So I, um, I focus it in the book on the, in the book as the unhappy chemical, but I am aware that in many places, for example, in the yoga community, people often talk about, are you thinking of the word? What's it starts with an A? Um, no. ad- well, it's adrenaline suppression. Um, adrenal fatigue is what right, they call it. I heard about that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. How to combine these two things. So here's the way I look at it. If you were a monkey and you woke up in the morning and you would be hungry and hunger is cortisol. Uh, a cortisol tells you, you better do something soon or you're going to be in big trouble. And that's what gets a monkey to look for food. So when we have like this lyrical view of the state of nature, we think that the monkey is like enjoying the forest. Mm-hmm. But if they don't attend to its needs, then it's going to starve. And they have that constant signal that says, you better look for food. And if you don't find food, you got to look further, but then you might get eaten alive if you look further. And then you got to get somebody to go with you, but nobody wants to follow you. So it's, you know, it's, it's drama. Right. So <laughs> that cortisol feels bad because you are so motivated to do what it takes to relieve the cortisol that you take the risk of looking for the food and you put in the effort of looking for the food. You negotiate the social alliances to look for food with others in safety. So that's why we wake up in the morning with cortisol because it gets us do stuff. Now, there are people who think, well, you should wake up with a certain level of cortisol and if you don't, it's a problem. Now, I have a little problem with that theory because, so uh, I don't know if you have a an alarm clock marriage or not. So I let's don't. just say like, <laughs> I hate alarm clocks. Right, I think it's so unhealthy to wake up <laughs> in that stressful way. So many people have never even experienced an alternative to wake up naturally. And so most people wake up with this horrible alarm and alarm is really a synonym for cortisol. Mm, They feel alarmed. And so all of these tests about what is a normal cortisol level in the morning, it's all based on people who wake up with alarm clocks. So, and I, I have to say, you know, when my husband you know, had this uh, like alarm going, it's like, oh my God, that's (laughs) not healthy. (laughs) That is cute. Uh, I agree a hundred percent. I have a question here about cortisol. Is cortisol often triggered by mental constructed fears or could it be? Yes, 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 yes. (laughs) So why, why do we do this? And, um, there's a simple reason is that, um, Our brain evolved to scan for potential threats. And when you're safe, then there's no immediate threat. So your brain looks out for more distant threats because anticipating threats is what kept humans safe. So I'll give you a simple example. Um, Let's say um, this may not be true in Brazil, but maybe in Portugal. I don't know that um, like our ancestors could freeze to death in the winter if they didn't accumulate you know, food and firewood in the summer. Our brain designed to anticipate threats and that's how we survive. In the modern world, 
you don't have to worry about, gee, I, you know, I grew mm-hmm. this much food and I might starve to death before the next harvest season. So because our world is so safe and we never see our children getting eaten alive by predators, then we have to look further to find a potential threat. And that's what we do. Right. <laughs> wow. That makes me think about the concept of the mind and thoughts, how to, and mindfulness, meditation, all that, that kind of helps to control those uh, unhappy chemicals from just releasing itself <laughs> unnecessarily. <laughs> yes, yes. Exactly. Although I have to say that um, uh, I was in yoga for 10 years and despite all the mindfulness, I heard so much negative thinking that mm, I, I just gave up. Then. So because this sentence, how often do you hear this is, our society is so stressful. Yeah. So people are constantly blaming their stress on society. And so the goal of taking responsibility for your stress, I think is very valuable. And if you're in a, um, a social environment that blames stress on others or the world, then you're not doing yourself a favor, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I really agree with what you're saying and believe uh, that that's the truth. Yeah, we the way of becoming healthy is really um, yeah, self-knowledge, self-awareness, yeah, focusing on, like you say, our own brains <laughs> instead of blaming and pointing the figure at others. Right. I agree. Um, I guess oh, I had so many questions here, but um, maybe the next time we'll talk about them. So many questions. Your book is very interesting. It got me thinking a lot. So let me ask you my final questions. Would you like to read, to say, add anything or read uh, a section from your book? Oh, thank you. Well, you know what? I'll just mention that um, when you say your book is very interesting, that I'll just mention the two others. So the sequel to that, when I said that I went on and wrote the third book, (laughs) um, so that one is called The Science of Positivity, Stop Negative Thought Patterns by Changing Your Brain Chemistry. And then I wrote another one called Tame Your Anxiety, Rewiring Your Brain for Happiness. And then I wrote another, uh, um, well, uh, and I'm writing another one now, but that won't be around till next year. Wow. Interesting. Extremely interesting work. So my final question is, what is your definition of success? What is to be successful to you? Um, I definitely think what we said about um, not letting this negativity suck you in. And just to explain why it's so easy to get sucked into it, once your cortisol is released, it stays in your system for about an hour longer than the happy chemicals. So if you imagine that you're a gazelle and you smell a lion, then what is the first thing you do is you look for, well, where is the lion? Because I don't want to run toward it. So that's what we do as soon as our cortisol is released. We look for more information about the threat. So once you look for information, your brain is so big that you find it. So that's why we're always convincing ourselves that we actually have found proof of how awful things are because the cortisol is telling us to look for negative things. And once you do that, then you release more cortisol. So you look for more threat and you get into a loop. Mm, wow. And then that loop becomes myelinated. So that becomes your autopilot. So it's just getting out of that that is so valuable. Right. And that is your definition of success. Interesting. Yes. What is to be strong? What is true strength? 
So what I always call it is um, when I compared carving a pathway in the rainforest with a machete versus coasting on the highway. So it's it's the ability to blaze a new trail in your brain, despite the fact that that new trail feels unsafe. And the old trail, the old highway, it feels safe, even when you know it's not safe. So the famous example is, you know, a person with an addiction. So when they stop the addiction, they feel unsafe, even though the opposite is true. So it's that ability to follow another pathway in your brain that's not the familiar one. That's what takes so much strength. And just so people know, what what it actually takes is 100% of your energy. So to stop focusing on other things and only focus on that. Wow. For a minute. Yeah, I like that. In a way, you made me think of courage, just having courage. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? Oh, so... um, I, um, so I was very withdrawn when I was young. I, like I said, I had a rather threatening environment and I mean, mostly from my mother, not, not to blame the world. Um, and so to, to learn that I was creating the threat myself and the simple example that I always use to, to retrain myself. So if I would go to a a store And when you pay and then the person gives you change, if you notice like whether or not you make eye contact with the person when they give you change. And a lot of times, you know, you're busy, you're packing your groceries or whatever. But a lot of the time, you know, you just don't make eye contact with them. I didn't make eye contact with them. So I made it like my practice. I said, I'm going to make eye contact with them as a is practice. So I found that if I looked at them and they didn't look back at me, that I had this horrible feeling. And that was able to sort of to recreate that feeling of neglect in my past. But then, you know, when when they looked at me, then I would also feel threatened by that because then I got negative attention. So it was just to understand that I was creating all of that and it had nothing to do with what the person was thinking about me. (laughs) Right. Um, yeah, I can relate to it. <laughs> and I think a lot of people too. Do you believe in unconditional self-love or unconditional self-acceptance? Yes. And that's obviously not an argument for doing whatever feels good, but it's the idea that we have what feels good in the long run, what feels good in the short run, and balancing that is hard enough. But then we have one more element, which is that it's hard to predict like, I think this is going to feel good in the long run, but it may or may not. So that's what I always say is that's the challenge that comes with the gift of life. And to accept that your brain is designed to make these decisions, but you can't just get perfection in every moment. How wonderful. Yeah, I love what you said about that comes, all this really comes from the gift of life, uh, the experience of being a human body, right? Yes. Um, If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you change anything about your life, do anything differently? You know, I do ask myself that, and uh, (laughs) I I guess I would just say I would um, eat more ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, No, but I would spend more time with my granddaughter. Not not that I'm too busy for her now, but like now I, I just sort of don't want to intrude on her parents. But, you know, I, I would intrude on her parents if I <laughs> were not going to make it. 
Do you believe in life after death? Um, I personally don't, but as I said, anyone who does, I totally respect that. Right. What are three things about life you know for sure as of this moment? Hmm. So, well, why don't we could talk about like the <laughs> the mind body connection. I know that's um, a popular topic now, and. Well, let's just say that your verbal brain is a very small percentage of what's going on with you. Mm. And part of it's in your brain, but part of it's also in your muscles. And I had a lot of muscle tension and um, I think we all do. And it's really hard. Like I would like to say that I've released it, but I, I don't think I have. So that's sort of my one of my bigger challenges. So what? say the question again. Yeah, three things about life you know for sure. Yeah, that um, relaxing your muscle tension and acknowledging your nonverbal brain, I'll count that as two. <laughs> yeah. So, And the third one, like I said, is that we care about our legacy. We care about what we're going to leave behind um, because that helps soothe our mortality fears. And there are so many ways to define your legacy and however you define it, that it's worth your effort. It's, it's valuable. Mm, I like that. Wow. It has been a fun, meaningful, and genuine conversation, uh, Loretta. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, I, I really appreciate how how um, aware you are of the content and great original questions. <laughs> I had so many more questions, but the time, the time. Um, where can we find more information about you, your books, services, and future projects? Sure. So um, I have a website, innermammalinstitute.org, innermammalinstitute.org. And I have an explanation of this in every format people like. So I have for people who don't like to read, for, for people who like short reads and um, for people who like books. So every possible. Oh, and I have a lot in Spanish and a mm, little bit in French. Right. Wonderful. Thank you so much again. And I'll talk to you soon. And one, I have one slideshow in Portuguese. Oh, Portuguese. Wow. Yes. One, um, I should tell you. So intermammalinstitute.org slash multilingual. I have Portuguese, French, um, and German there. And then I have separate pages for one for Spanish and a separate page for French. Really wonderful. Thank you so much again for what you do, the way you do it, and for who you are, the way you express yourself. Really Thanks. wonderful. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Loretta Bruning, please visit her website, Inner Mammal Institute. Org. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bickrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now. Bye for now.